Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Last week, we began telling the story of David O. Selznick, husband of Louis B. Mayer's daughter Irene, the on-again, off-again MGM executive brought back by Mayer when Irving Felberg had his first major heart attack, and the driving force behind the biggest hit in the history of Hollywood, Gone with the Wind. Today, we pick up the story as Selznick meets Phyllis Walker, a struggling actress and married mother of two, who Selznick would transform into an Oscar-winning star named Jennifer Jones. Selznick's affair with Jones would destroy his marriage to Irene Mayer Selznick, but long after their separation, Selznick still prevaricated on marrying his mistress. Over the course of several years, willingly stuck in suspended animation between two women, Selznick produced two films starring Jones, which more or less dramatized his self-destructive sexual and romantic obsession with her. Selznick's fortunes dwindled following his coupling with Jones, but his fates were rosy compared to those of Robert Walker, the husband who Jennifer jilted in order to be with her Svengali. Today we'll trace the intertwined fates of Walker, Jones, and Selznick from the early 1940s into the 70s. We'll talk about many of the movies they made over those decades, and talk about the ways in which Selznick spent the second 20 years of his career chasing and trying to outrun the accomplishments of the first 20 years. Join us, won't you, for part two of the David O. Selznick story, featuring Jennifer Jones and Robert Walker. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1941, Phyllis Walker was a 22-year-old struggling actress, married to fellow struggling actor Robert Walker and the mother of his two sons. Originally from Oklahoma, Phyllis had met Walker at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York in 1938. They were married a year later and soon moved to Los Angeles looking to further their acting careers. Phyllis had to travel most of the way to the bottom of the studio food chain in order to get a job. She was signed to a five-year contract at Republic Pictures, a Poverty Row outlet which made the Zorro and Lone Ranger series, as well as B-Westerns. She made her screen debut opposite John Wayne in a film called New Frontier, and then landed a small part in a Dick Tracy serial. 
then she got pregnant, and she and Robert, who was already disillusioned with Hollywood, headed back to New York. There, she landed an audition for the Chicago run of a play called Claudia. David O. Selznick had bought the film rights to Claudia, and he watched Phyllis's audition. Phyllis thought she blew the audition, and she didn't get the part. But she did get a seven-year contract with David O. Selznick's production company. When did David's affair with his new contract player begin? As early as summer 1941, shortly after she signed the contract and came out to Los Angeles so that she could star in a play which John Hausman was directing and Selznick was producing, members of Selznick's staff observed the boss requesting his new actress's presence at late-night meetings. One assistant reported hearing through closed doors the typical sounds of a Selznick seduction. She wasn't Jennifer yet. Selznick didn't assign her the name Jennifer Jones until January 1942. And Selznick's attention was divided. That year, he'd become infatuated with another young actress named Nancy Kelly. As ever burning the candle at both ends, by the summer of 1942, Selznick was running on empty. In a letter to Irene, he admitted that he was suffering from a depression such as I haven't known in a long time. Around this time, he and his partner in Selznick International Pictures, Jock Whitney, realized that in order to avoid a huge tax bill, one of them was going to have to sell their shares of Gone with the Wind to the other. Selznick ended up selling his rights to Whitney because he couldn't persuade Whitney to buy him out. Selznick's sale would provide Selznick with an immediate cash windfall of $400,000, and after interest, a total of about $700,000. Given the enormous value of the film, which has not yet and probably will never stop earning money, this was an incredibly short-sighted decision for David to make. To make matters worse for Selznick's pride as well as his bank account, Jock Whitney would soon thereafter sell Gone with the Wind to MGM. Selznick still hadn't done anything with his latest discovery, but in the fall of 1942, he knew that over at Fox, his brother-in-law, Bill Getz, the husband of Irene's sister Edie, had tested 300 actresses for the titular lead role in the film The Song of Bernadette, about a peasant girl who has visions of the Virgin Mary. Selznick didn't just ask Getz to test Jones for the part. He mounted what he'd call a systematic campaign, slowly working on Getz over a matter of months until the casting decision came down to Jones and Ann Baxter. And Jones won. Coincidentally, around this time, Robert Walker was cast in the MGM film Baton, and so he joined his wife out in Hollywood. But Selznick wanted Phyllis to keep her husband and kids out of sight. Bernadette was supposed to be a saintly, virginal teenager, and Selznick didn't want to spoil the illusion. This proved impossible, but it was just the beginning of Selznick's attempt to control his new protege. He banned her from watching dailies after her first screening of them gave her anxiety over how she looked. And he famously banned the actress from attending the premiere of Song of Bernadette. He wanted the audience to see her character on the screen without any idea of the actress who appeared on the red carpet going in. Selznick managed all of this, even though he wasn't producing or in any way officially involved with the film. 
Selznick had liquidated Selznick International Pictures and started a new company, the Selznick Studio, which would make its debut with the film Since You Went Away, a nearly three-hour-long wartime epic on which Selznick credited himself as both producer and writer. He could also take credit as a kind of anti-Cupid. Selznick cast Jennifer Jones as Jane, one of the teenage girls at the center of the film, and he cast Robert Walker, Jones's husband, as Jane's doomed soldier love interest. It is unclear, at least to me, the exact state of Selznick and Jones's romantic relationship at the time when this casting decision was made, but with the benefit of hindsight, many have accused Selznick of cruelly using his power as producer to rub his cuckolding of a husband in that husband's face. At the time, for business reasons, it made sense to cast Walker, who was MGM's hot young male star of the moment, having just starred in the hit boot camp comedy, See Here, Private Hargrove. Selznick's biographer, David Thompson, actually thinks David might have been trying to reunite Jones with Walker, either as misdirection from the affair or because he was bored of the affair. Thompson also claims that Walker was having his own affair with Judy Garland, opposite whom he'd soon be cast in the perfect wartime romance, The Clock. But Walker's own recollections of the shooting of Since You Went Away indicate that until he walked on that set, he was not aware that his marriage was in trouble. Whatever Selznick's motivation, Walker was witness to the special treatment his wife received on the set. She would disappear into the producer's office for long stretches of time, during which time the cast and crew would be left to hurry up and wait. New scenes were added over the course of shooting to give Jones more to do. The producer and star's conferences would stretch late into the evenings. When Irene would call, David's secretary would say he was in the screening room. And Irene would say, Who are you kidding? Jennifer asked her husband for a separation during the filming of Since You Went Away. The timing was curious. They still had scenes left to film together. At the close of shooting the scene in which Jones's Jane puts Walker's bill on a train to be shipped out and eventually killed, Jones stayed in character while her husband rode off, and then she ran off the set in tears. Walker moved into a small apartment, and in his loneliness and misery, he started seriously drinking for the first time. When he and Garland would start filming The Clock together in the fall of 1944, it fell to Garland, who of course had addiction problems of her own, to keep Walker sober enough to get through the movie. Selznick was making Since You Went Away after having won the Best Picture Oscar two years in a row for Gone with the Wind and then Rebecca. He was surely emboldened by this success, this unprecedented appointment at the hands of the industry, as its de facto creative savant. He must have felt like he had earned the right to do whatever he wanted. But what he apparently wanted to do was make a movie that served as a tribute to a still beautiful, if no longer young mother, who managed to keep her household together and raise her two kids in the absence of her husband. Later, it might seem cruel that he cast his mistress as one of the proud mother's daughters. But even so, Since You Went Away sort of plays like Selznick's love letter to Irene, an extremely sentimental expression of his hope that she would be strong enough to live without him. On March 2, 1944, 
Jennifer Jones won an Oscar for Song of Bernadette, her first film made under her new name and under Selznick's shaping of her identity. Selznick had not been rooting for his lover. In fact, he straight up told her that he was throwing his support behind his other contract star, Ingrid Bergman, who was nominated in the same category for For Whom the Bell Tolls. But the awards fell on Jennifer's 25th birthday, and she was the ingenue of the moment, which has always counted for something. Walker stayed home that night, listening to the ceremony on the radio, drinking. The next day... Jennifer filed for divorce. Did Jennifer believe that David was soon going to do the same? That they would easily exchange their current spouses for one another? If so, she was wrong. There were already signs that the real Phyllis couldn't live up to the fantasy Selznick attached to Jennifer Jones. His new star's lack of experience and naivete were a selling point for Selznick in that they made her malleable. But even as she began to amass credits, she seemed uncomfortable with so much of the work of being a star. She hated having her picture taken. She couldn't bear to do interviews. She was so insecure about the way she looked that sometimes she could barely get dressed, and other times it would take hours to settle on something to wear just to leave the house. This got worse after it became public knowledge that she had left her husband. By the summer of 1944, when Jennifer would pick up the phone and find it was Selznick's publicist on the other end, surely looking to schedule an interview or photo shoot, Jennifer would pretend to be the maid and claim that Miss Jones is out of the city. Selznick hired international glamour girl Anita Colby to teach Jennifer how to photograph better. But Jones still couldn't get over her nerves. At still photo sessions, Colby would have to stand out of frame, holding Jennifer's trembling hand. Later, Selznick came up with a plan to ease Jennifer through a press day. Limited to three interviews, with one in the morning, lunch with a martini forced down Jennifer's lips, then one in the afternoon, then another martini. This incredibly nervous woman hardly fits the image of the cold-hearted homewrecker. And maybe that was part of the problem. Jones could leave her own marriage, but she wasn't the kind of person who could ask the man she loved to leave his, and Selznick took advantage of that. If Selznick had immediately ended his own marriage, allowing Jones to publicly align herself with him, maybe she would have at least felt protected. Instead, Jennifer Jones felt all alone in front of a firing squad. David spent Christmas 1944 at home with Irene and his two sons. For Irene's presents, David had essentially bought a new wardrobe, ordering entire ensembles by citing their page number in Vogue magazine. Jennifer was sent a single strand of pearls with a cryptic card reading, I am not a very deep thinker, but I lead a charmed life. Two months later, Irene lay in bed next to her husband, sleepless. He asked her what was the matter. At first, she said, nothing. Then she said, the jig is up. What do you mean? David asked. Irene responded, I want out. Irene would later say that at this point, she didn't consciously know David was having an affair with Jennifer, that she didn't really know it until amidst the arguments that followed, David admitted it. She'd also say that the fact that she couldn't sense it 
meant that she and her husband had drifted untenably far apart. No one else believed that Irene hadn't really known, because everyone knew. But saying she didn't know was a kind of self-preservation. David wouldn't accept a breakup. He insisted on negotiating. Irene wanted him to give up his mistress, obviously, but she also wanted him to quit gambling. He would lose over $300,000 that year alone. He was afraid that if he did break it off with Jennifer, Irene would leave him anyway, and then he'd be all alone. He also felt that he couldn't break it off with Jennifer, that she was too fragile, that she'd never survive without him to prop her up. Finally, David begged his wife, Irene, please don't leave me, for if you do... I'll have to marry her. With the matter unresolved, David went on location to produce a film which struck many as a love letter to his mistress. Actually, love letter is probably not the correct term. Irene was biased, of course, but the term she used was pornographic. Split the difference? In Duel in the Sun, Jones would play a quote-unquote half-breed who disrupts the lives of two brothers on an Arizona ranch with her uncontainable sexual allure. Jones's Pearl doesn't want to be a bad girl, but in what would seem like racial stereotyping today but then was totally normal, it's just in her blood. She hopes for romance with the good brother, played by Joseph Cotton, and she even marries a nice man, played by Charles Bickford but she can't stay away from the very bad brother, played by Gregory Peck. In order to play the part, Jennifer would have to find a way to summon her inner sex goddess, a tall order for a woman who could barely pose for a glamour photograph. Taking a page from Howard Hughes, whose sexed-up western The Outlaw was in the process of making stars out of Jane Russell's breasts and the alleged aerodynamic bra Hughes himself had designed to hold them aloft, Selznick arranged for Jennifer to go to Max Factor and have them create a rubberized contraption to enhance her own bosom. Just as Russell didn't really wear Hughes's bra, Jennifer managed to get the affect her producer was after without actually encasing her breasts in rubber. That Jones could not have been less comfortable in this role is evidenced by the multiple attempts to shoot Jones performing a seductive dance, which eventually had to be scrapped. That there was something ethically icky about the whole endeavor is evidenced by the fact that on the day they shot a scene in which Gregory Peck's character rapes Jones, a crowd gathered on set to watch what they assumed would be comedy, because Jones was incapable of acting sexy enough to be raped. That the whole thing was too personal for anyone's comfort is evidenced by the story that in post-production, Selznick ordered Dmitry Tyomkin to create, quote-unquote, orgasm music for the rape scene. When Selznick was not happy with the composer's first stab, he said, It's not the way I fuck. The film went so over budget and over schedule that at some point, Selznick put into motion a second unit, which shot with actors simultaneously to the main unit as though it was an A unit. Shortly after that, director King Vidor quit. Selznick took over directing himself. In August 1945, David and Irene finally separated. As he was leaving their home, Irene said to her departing husband, I've had the best years of your life. 
she was trying to lighten the mood. She didn't know how right she was. David O. Selznick left his marital home and went to his father-in-law's office. Louis B. Mayer and Selznick conferenced for hours. That night, Selznick lost $30,000 playing gin with Samuel Goldwyn. By the end of that year, his gambling debts for the previous 12 months totaled $1 million. It was another three months before he and Jennifer who was having something like a nervous breakdown after working on Duel in the Sun for a full year, began appearing in public as a couple. A month later, Jennifer swallowed a bottle of sleeping pills. She had her stomach pumped and survived. The timing is unclear, so it's hard to say that this was a motivating factor. But David did, once again, spend Christmas with Irene and their two sons and his close friend George Cooker, in the old family house in Beverly Hills. A year later, Duel in the Sun finally premiered. Selznick had been asked by the censorship office to make some changes, to trim a shot revealing too much of Jones's breasts, to cut a kiss that too romanticized the illicit sexual relationship at the film's core. Selznick, who had set up his own independent distribution company to release the film, cut nothing at the request of the censors before opening the movie in Los Angeles so that local journalists and the industry elite saw Selznick's pure, unadulterated, crude vision. He couldn't get away with releasing that so-called producer's cut nationwide, so six minutes were eventually trimmed. Hoping the film's notoriety as a lavish sex flick would fill houses before anyone saw reviews, Selznick rushed Duel in the Sun into wide release, a modern strategy which was virtually unheard of at the time, and which worked to turn a profit out of a very strange, not totally successful, but still fascinating film. By the end of 1946, Selznick's gambling losses totaled nearly $600,000 for the year. His company's financial situation was dire. He was separated from Irene, living with Jennifer, but apparently still holding out hope that his wife would take him back. By the end of 1947, The divorce was still not settled, but Selznick was so short of cash that he offered Irene his prized Matisse painting as collateral in exchange for an $18,000 personal loan. Selznick never managed to pay off the loan and get the painting back. In the midst of all this crisis, Selznick produced one of his strangest films, a vehicle for Jennifer in which she would age from a prepubescent child into a young adult goddess, and through which Selznick would lay bare his own untenable, totally self-destructive obsession with his muse. Portrait of Jenny starred Joseph Cotton as Eben Adams, a Depression-era artist who roams Manhattan's freezing streets, broke, trying to peddle unremarkable landscape paintings, until he meets a little girl in Central Park who inspires him to paint from life. Every time Eben meets this Jenny, she seems to have aged a year or more, and the details of her life that she shares make it seem like she's living in the past. Literally, that she's stuck somehow in the 19-teens. She keeps asking him to wait for her to grow up, and then they'll be together forever. He does wait, and it doesn't take her long to grow up, but the painter arrives at the point where the only thing he can paint is her. And then she disappears, and when he tries to find her, he finds out that Jenny died years before. In a completely nutty but gorgeous sequence, shot in technicolor in a film that's otherwise black and white, 
Eben tries to save Jenny, but of course he can't. He can't save her, and he can't have her, and he can't make art without her. Two of Selznick's children, Danny, one of his two sons with Irene, and Mary Jennifer, his daughter with Jones, born in 1955, would become fascinated with Portrait of Jenny, watching it almost compulsively. Danny would say that he felt the movie was his father's way of encapsulating his romantic fantasies about Jennifer. And in watching it, the son felt he was able to not only feel what his father felt for his mistress, but also to empathize with what it must have felt like for Jennifer to compete with the image of herself that David was putting on screen. The story of the film almost too closely paralleled where David O. Selznick was at, and tragically, where his life was going. Portrait of Jenny would be his last American film. It cost nearly three times what it eventually earned. Deep under the spell of Jennifer, dependent on Benzedrine, and in the throes of a gambling addiction, Selznick had lost his ability to speak to the masses. When the dust settled, Selznick made a deal with British producer Alexander Korda, through which they'd co-produce Carol Reed's The Third Man, as well as the totally loony Powell and Pressburger film Gone to Earth, starring Jennifer as a gypsy girl torn between a nice suitor and a bad one in the rolling English countryside. Selznick would stay up all night, night after night, writing memos to the directors of that film, which they would ignore. When Selznick saw their cuts, he deemed it unreleasable, and he insisted on reshooting about a third of the movie on a soundstage in Hollywood and releasing it in the U.S. under the name The Wild Heart. It's no wonder Selznick's relationship with Korda fell apart of the course of making the movie. Selznick was putting all of his considerable talents into overseeing and protecting Jennifer Jones, who was in Selznick's own mind his greatest creation since Gone with the Wind. From everything I've read about Selznick during this period, I get the sense that David threw passion and extravagance into projects like Portrait of Jenny and Gone to Earth because he was determined to make another Gone with the Wind starring Jennifer, as a gift to her, and as an escape plan for himself. If he could make a showcase for her that was so undeniable, then she wouldn't need him anymore. And because he would have restored himself to his prior glory, he wouldn't need her either. But that didn't happen. Finally, in July 1949, while on a yachting vacation in the Mediterranean, David Oselznik married Jennifer Jones in Genoa. When they got to the part of the civil ceremony about their bond surviving sickness, health, and debt, Jennifer laughed, but David laughed louder. On their honeymoon, Selznick wrote a poem. My wife is a little girl. Her hair is a curl, like a little girl. She drinks those if she were an adolescent, and when she's tight, her eyes are phosphorescent. You should see her when she smokes. There's a laugh now. She's afraid people might see she doesn't know how. Friends saw echoes of the violent passion at the center of Duel in the Sun in the new Mr. and Mrs. Selznick's marriage. At one point, Anita Colby, spending the night at David and Jennifer's house, watched David chase Jennifer out of their bedroom and slap her hard in the face. David turned to Colby and said, Don't worry, she likes it. David's need to put Jennifer on a pedestal on screen, alternately treating her as a sex goddess and as a child, 
made her incredibly self-conscious in life. David had to put her to work because they needed the money, but then he'd overwhelm her directors with memos and interfere with her performance to the extent that filmmakers were wary of working with her, even though she continued to do often very good work. Jones gave some of her best performances in movies made after her partner started to slip from his perch of Hollywood power, including in Vincent Minnelli's 1949 version of Madame Bovary, William Wyler's 1952 Theodore Dreiser adaptation Carrie, and Beat the Devil, John Huston's loose screwball farce that's much better than it deserves to be given that it was blatantly made as an excuse for Huston and Bogart to vacation in Italy. Jones shows an incredible facility for comedy in Beat the Devil, which aside from in Ernst Lubitsch's Clooney Brown, she didn't get to show off much. It's hard to find a movie Jones made after Since You Went Away that wasn't at least a little bit crazy, but too often she played heightened mental and emotional states for overblown tragedy. This seems to be somewhat related to Selznick's meddling. She gives her most confident performances in movies that he wasn't credited on. Not that he didn't try to put his fingerprints on them anyway. He pestered Weiler to cast Jones and Carrie, noting that she, rather than a younger, less experienced, and less beautiful actress, was perfect for the part because... The audience must understand why the man falls hopelessly and irrevocably in love with Carrie and goes headlong into doom and disaster. The power dynamic between Jennifer and David wasn't a simple one. But it was perhaps an inevitable one for the man who had created the original A Star is Born, which became a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy for Selznick. As his mistress-turned-wife became a viable star, his own power and celebrity faded away. Jennifer Jones was David O. Selznick's creation, and increasingly, the only product he had left to sell for which there were any buyers. As far as her career went, she was completely at his mercy. Long before she was his marital property, as his contract player, she could only star in films that he approved for her. But their dependency was a two-way street. Jennifer had a kind of power over him which was hard to explain, and in fact he seemingly made movies like Duel in the Sun and Portrait of Jenny in an effort to express the ineffable. David was also dependent on the salary Jennifer earned acting in other people's movies to make money to support their lifestyle, which grew increasingly hard to finance with every Selznick flop. David and Jennifer didn't always like each other. In fact, some observers suggest they were a very bad match. But they needed each other, sometimes desperately so. Sensing that Hollywood was dying earlier than some of his colleagues, a realization perhaps nudged along because Hollywood was now cautious about working with him, Selznick insisted Europe was the future and offered Jennifer's services to Vittoria De Sica, director of Bicycle Thieves. The resulting film, titled Terminal Station or Indiscretions of an American Wife, was a disaster in part because David was only cool with neorealism up to the point where it didn't allow for glamour close-ups of his wife. Co-star Montgomery Clift called Selznick an interfering fuckface. Selznick would produce just one more feature, a misbegotten adaptation of Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms, starring Jennifer and Rock Hudson. The original director of that film, John Huston, who quit days before shooting was scheduled to begin, would later write... David never did anything worth a damn after he married Jennifer. David was full of regrets, but he might have argued that he did one great thing after marrying Jennifer, and that was father their daughter, 
Mary Jennifer. Mary Jennifer replaced her mother as the object of David's extravagant affections in his final years. On his end, there's no indication the relationship was anything but typical of an older father's unbridled need to spoil and pamper the young daughter produced by a second marriage. But the little girl seems to have been somewhat confused as to where she fit into the always odd dynamic between her parents. Jennifer was often left to reprimand behavior that David indulged or even encouraged, such as by buying Mary Jennifer grown-up-style dressing gowns and teaching her to mix and serve cocktails. Mary Jennifer also became obsessed with Portrait of Jenny, the film in which her father had cast her mother as a little girl begging an adult man to wait for her. One Valentine's Day, when Mary Jennifer was about six, she came home from shopping for Valentine's cards, furious at the nanny that had taken her on the errand. The little girl told her father, She wouldn't let me get the card that I wanted for my husband. I told her, I've got to have it for my husband. And she said, I couldn't do that, because you're my father. While all of this was happening, David and Jennifer's former spouses were going in very different directions. With the divorce, Irene had started spending time in New York, and she soon started reinventing herself as a theater producer, much to the chagrin of her father, who thought theater producer was a step down from Hollywood daughter slash wife. He berated her. Why do you think people are in the theater? I'm surprised anyone as intelligent as you can't figure it out. They're there in order to get what you already have which is position and opportunity in Hollywood. You have friends, you're well-known, you're respected. You've got everything right here. Name one person that didn't wind up broke in the theater. Irene was intelligent enough to know what her father was really saying. He had left Irene's mother in 1944 in the midst of some kind of midlife crisis at age 60. Three years later, he was desperate for some sense of family. He offered Irene a job at the studio. He asked her to move into his house in L.A. But Irene said, Everyone else's interests have always come first. I must try things my way. A year later, her father married a widow and single mom named Lorena. Lorena and Irene were the same age. By that point, Irene had proved herself with her first theatrical hit, A Streetcar Named Desire. Irene Mayer Selznick's incredible second act as a theater producer didn't keep her from staying in her ex-husband's life. In their divorce settlement, Irene was awarded a 50% stake in David's production company, which she held on to until Selznick liquidated the company's assets in 1951. One of the assets was the contract of Jennifer Jones, who Irene wanted nothing to do with. But it was evident to Jennifer, and many of Selznick's friends, that David had never stopped loving Irene, and it didn't help her fragile state of mind. One day, Jennifer showed up at a New York theater where Irene was rehearsing a new play and refused to leave until Irene spoke with her about a matter of life-or-death importance. When Jennifer hadn't gone away hours later, Irene finally agreed to drive around the park with her and hear her out. Jennifer quickly became hysterical, blaming herself for ruining David's life 
saying she was bad for him and begging Irene to take him back. She tried to jump out of the moving car, but Irene stopped her. Irene told Jennifer that she wasn't bad. David was bad for himself. But Jennifer wasn't just being paranoid. David did still feel closer to Irene than anyone else, still valued her as a confidant in a way in which Jennifer, for all of her allure, couldn't match. And Jennifer had no ability to keep her husband from maintaining the closest of friendships to his ex-wife. Jennifer appears to not have shared such a close relationship to her own ex, Robert Walker, although they did share custody of their two sons. But Jennifer felt guilty about how the marriage had ended, so while she kept abreast of what Walker was up to, she also kept her distance. He actually remarried first to Barbara Ford, the daughter of John Ford, but the marriage was over a few weeks after it began. In the years after the breakup, Walker drank heavily, and he was openly upset about the end of his first marriage. My personal life has been completely wrecked by David Selznick's obsession for my wife, he reportedly said. What can you do to fight such a powerful man? My life has been hell. Walker spent time in treatment for alcoholism and depression. After his divorce from Ford, he ran away from a clinic in Topeka, Kansas, was arrested for public drunkenness, and then accused of smashing up the police station. He had his best role in the best film he ever made in 1951 as the murder masterminding co-star of Alfred Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train. Hitchcock loved and doted on Walker, and the actor believed he had done his best work ever in the film and that his fortunes were finally looking up. But in the midst of shooting his very next film, Walker died under mysterious circumstances. He had been home alone all day, sleeping, possibly drinking, although friends like Keenan Wynn would later say that Walker's alcohol problem had been cured. In the evening, his housekeeper called his psychiatrist, who restrained Walker and gave him a tranquilizer. The doctor later claimed that Walker kept saying, I feel terrible, Doc. Do something quick. Another report says that Walker pleaded to not get the shot, saying, Don't give it to me. I've been drinking. It will kill me. Please don't give me that shot. When the injection hit him, Walker turned blue, passed out, and never woke up. The death certificate listed the cause of death as natural causes, but also noted Walker, quote, had been a victim of schizophrenia of an undiagnosed nature. David Selznick would later admit that the phrasing of the death certificate had been massaged in what he called an attempt to protect Walker's children. Very little is known for sure about the circumstances of Walker's death or his state of mind leading up to it, but that lack of confirmable facts has led to an oft-repeated truism that his divorce from Jones led him down a dark path, ultimately leading to something like slow suicide via alcohol. Again, we don't really know what was going on in Walker's head or body, But it would be wrong to suggest that Jennifer walked away from her first marriage untroubled. Over the course of the two decades she and David were together, Jennifer's own psychiatric health required constant maintenance. She started spending long stretches of time in Zurich, where she had a team of psychoanalysts. There was more than one suicide attempt. By 1960, her husband, who had long chain-smoked up to four packs of cigarettes a day and had struggled with his weight— 
was suffering from serious heart disease. But their relationship was such that David felt Jennifer couldn't handle knowing the truth. Everything was precarious. There was almost no money coming in, but the Selznick's living expenses amounted to $8,500 a week in 1960 dollars. It got so bad that David decided they could save money by moving out of their Beverly Hills mansion and into the Hotel de Cap in the south of France. In the fall of 1964, the Selznick sailed to New York, and David and his daughter moved into the Waldorf Hotel. David knew he was dying, and he told Irene before he returned to Los Angeles in June 1965. On Monday, the 21st of June, David O. Selznick had an after-dinner nightcap of a creme de menthe frappe. The next day, around 12.30 p.m., he was in his lawyer's office when he had his last heart attack. Selznick was pronounced dead at 2.22 p.m. Though Jennifer personally invited her, Irene declined to attend the funeral. The other two ladies left in David's life found themselves at loose ends without a planet to orbit. Two years later, Jennifer called her psychiatrist and told him she had taken a lot of sleeping pills. She was later found passed out on the edge of the water in Malibu, but she was revived. And four years later, she married industrialist millionaire Norden Simon. Five years after that, 21-year-old Mary Jennifer Selznick jumped to her death off of the tallest building in Westwood, a vantage point visible from the window of her psychiatrist's office. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our editor is Henry Malofsky, and our research intern is Ali Gemmel. Big thanks to our special guests. Adam Goldberg returned as David O. Selznick. Craig Mazin returned as Louis B. Mayer. And Ryan Johnson returned as John Houston. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode, which include notes on the sources used for every episode, because you can't put footnotes on a podcast. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, and please rate and review the show there. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Death doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes and we can live in any way. We rise and we fall and we break and we make and if there's a reason I'm still alive When everyone who loves me has died I'm willing